In our Sunday school class over the last couple of months, several weeks at least, we've been studying the life of David as filtered through the Psalms. And it's very interesting to read what David has written in each season of his life as we've kind of tracked through the life of David and then reading his Psalms in response to what was going on. Last week we landed in Psalm 51, and I had kind of already been spinning those plates in my mind about this psalm when Tim asked me to preach several weeks ago, and so we landed on it in Sunday school. I said, man, there's a lot there. Um, What makes this psalm and this situation with David a, a little different as we look at it through the gospel lens is that David was a man after God's own heart. Those aren't my words. That's how God described David to Samuel, right? David was the faithful who failed. Now, the gospel, absolutely. If you're here this morning and you don't know much about Jesus, you certainly have never made any kind of public profession about his lordship in your life. The central truth for you this morning is that you're a sinner just like me, And that sin has consequences and penalties attached to it. But because of his great love, God made a way of escape. He poured his justice that was due us as sinners out on his son on a cross so that you can know mercy and grace. If you're outside of covenant with God this morning, that's your message today. Believe and repent and be saved. But the gospel has consequences and implications in the life of those of us who are believers. We live the gospel out every day, okay? I do anyway. Because every day, I'm falling short of the glory of God. I'm pressing on and pressing in. I want to pursue holiness. But as Paul confessed in his own life, there's a war raging, right? Maybe Is it not raging at your house? Man, it's raging at mine. In me, okay, there's this war at work where the Spirit knows what to do and longs to do that, but this flesh, and y'all, I got a lot of that, okay, this flesh is not making that easy. That's kind of what happened with David. The background of this story with David unfolds over a couple of chapters in 2 Samuel. And we're not going to read all that this morning because we're going to read Psalm 51, and that's going to be the focus. Of, that's going to be our primary text this morning. But let me summarize. I'm going to even go back, really, a few chapters and just kind of bullet point the life of David and what's going on. David was anointed to be king of Israel as a kid after God removed his blessing from Saul for being disobedient. So we already have one king that God didn't want to give Israel in the first place because God told him, I was your, I'm your king. But they begged him for one. He gave him a good old boy. He disobeyed. God removed his blessing from him. He said, I'm going to pick a man who is a man after my own heart. And he goes down to Jesse's house. You know the story. Jesse, uh, he sends Samuel down there. And Samuel says, I'm here to find the next king of Israel. And Jesse parades all his big strong boys out there and he goes, nope, that's not it he's not the one not is this it you got any more he said well there's david i know you're not talking about him 
little ruddy David, he's out tending sheep. That was the guy, okay? And that afternoon, he was anointed king over Israel. And David went on, and, a, and just a very short time later, David, still a kid, killed Goliath. And we think about it, so we know that story, David, little David and the big giant. But being a giant aside, Goliath was a seasoned professional soldier. And David went out there and he said, I, you know, you got spears and you got arrows and that's good, but I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And he, he said, the battle's going to belong to the Lord this day. That's faith, right? And after that, you know, he won the, the king's confidence. He won the king's daughter. Uh, he won tax-free exemption for he and his family for the rest. I mean, he got, got a pretty good deal out of that. And he began to grow in popularity. Saul brought him into his court, put him in charge of some security issues. David began to go out and have some success as a military leader. So much success, in fact, that the young ladies in Israel began to write songs about him. Songs that went, Saul's killed a thousand, but David's killed ten thousand. And he began to grow in some popularity. He kind of became a rock star, in a sense. People loved him. Saul got jealous. Remember, he had lost God's blessing. So he decided he was going to get rid of David and chased him out of his court, and David went on the run. He had a group of men with him that were loyal to him. On two different occasions, David had an opportunity to put an end to it and kill Saul. And nobody in Israel would have blamed him for that. Nobody would have said, you should have done that, David, because they all wanted him to be king anyway. But David so honored God's calling on the king that he said, I'm not going to touch the man. I'll let God deal with him. He knew he was the next king. He had been anointed at his daddy's house when he was a kid. He said, no, no, that's God's business. I'm not going to touch the king. He is God's chosen. David honored Saul's position as king, even though Saul was trying to kill him. He went on, Saul lost his life in battle, killed himself, really fell on his own sword. David first was exalted to king over Judah. He successfully united the two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, and became the first king over a united Israel and was very successful. The people loved him. He did things like he returned the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem where it had been hidden over in some guy's tent for years and years, forgotten about. And remember, this is another talk for another day, but the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God among the people, and they had kind of forgotten about it. And David said, no, this is the God that I worshipped out there when I was tending daddy's sheep. He's going to be central to my administration. We're going to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem where it belongs and make it central in our culture. And he did that. They had some bumps along the way, but he did it. And you remember he was marching the ark into the, into the streets of Jerusalem, and he was wearing the priestly linen ephod, dancing and celebrating through the streets with the people rejoicing, 
And his wife, King Saul's daughter, Michael, watching from a window, she kind of got sideways about it, and she got onto him. Can't imagine a wife getting onto a husband. Doesn't happen in my house. I'm perfect. But Michael got on to David and said, Oh, how undignified you were out there. You didn't look like a king at all. He said, You haven't seen anything yet. I will become even more undignified. David loved God. And that is well established. And because of that, God blessed David. He truly was a man after God's own heart. But here's what happened. And it's what happens to a lot of us. And and there's a warning in this. David became too comfortable in the blessings of God to the point that he ignored the calling and the giftedness God had placed on his life. So we come to 2 Samuel 11, and just the opening verses says, In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, that's his main general, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. You see what's going wrong immediately here. It was the time when kings went off to war, but David tarried in Jerusalem. He sent someone else to do the thing. God had called him, anointed him, and not only anointed gifted him to do, God, uh, God had gifted David to be a strategist and a warrior. He sent someone else to do the thing God intended for him to do. And they were successful. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Then one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And we know how the story goes. David was at a place he shouldn't have been, at a time he shouldn't have been there, doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And it led to a great failure of one of God's faithful. He saw this woman, Bathsheba. She belonged to one of his soldiers. You're right. Belonged is, that's, that's not politically correct. She was married to one of his soldiers. You're right. He didn't stop to consider that. He sent for her. They had a re- relations. He sent her home. He gets a message. She's pregnant. Now he's in the deep water, right? He's the king. Can't hide that. People saw her coming into the palace that night, I'm sure. He sent servants after her. People are going to talk. I've got to figure out what to do. I know, I'll bring Uriah home. He'll spend the weekend with her. We'll blame the baby on him. Everything's great. Problem is, Uriah was a man of honor. He came home and said, I can't go enjoy being with my wife while my comrades are out there dying for the king. I'll just sleep out here tonight on the street. I'll get up in the morning and go back to the... They said, now what am I going to do? This is a man after God's own heart. A lover of God who had already poured his heart out in many other psalms about the glory and the greatness of God and his loving kindness and his faithfulness. Now he's committed adultery and he's plotting a murder. And in one of the coldest acts I've ever heard, colder than anything I've ever seen in any Hollywood script, David signs Uriah's death warrant, seals it in an envelope, and gives it to him to deliver to his commander on the battlefield. I mean, it's crazy. This man after God's own heart. You know the story, right? He says, put him in the thick of the battle, and when it gets really, really, really bad in there, 
withdraw his support, and he'll just fall. And that's exactly what happened. Sometime later, many months later, because the child was born, the child died, but it was born. Bathsheba went through her period of mourning. David brought her into the palace, married her, tried to make things honest, and and he probably thought that's the end of it. Until God spoke to the prophet Nathan and sent him with a message for the king. Nathan showed up at the palace one afternoon says, I got a message for you from the king. He said, there's a problem in Israel, and here's the problem. There's a poor man down here that has one little bitty ewe lamb that he's raised and treated it like a child. Loves that little lamb. You got a rich man in your kingdom over here that he could have any, I mean, he's got tons of animals. But he had some party guests come along. He went over, took the poor man's little ewe lamb that he loved so much and killed it and cooked it and fed it to his, his guest. And the scripture says David was incensed and he, he burned with anger. He said, bring this man to me. And Nathan said, you're the man that point his heart was broken and he repented and it was in response to that contrition that brokenness over his sin that he wrote this psalm that we're going to read together so if you have your bible with you i invite you to turn click or scroll to psalm 51 and let's read david's response to the conviction and brokenness that god brought to him through the words of the prophet nathan over the sins he had committed with his affair through his affair with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And that, I mean, you can really imagine. We said, what does he mean by that? He killed the woman's husband and married her. Every time he looked her in the eye, his sin was before him. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely, you're, surely you desire truth in the inner parts and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. That's a reference to the hyssop branch that they used uh, on the uh, Day of Atonement back in, in Egypt at Passover when they took uh, the blood and sprinkled it over the doorpost with that hyssop branch. And then for generations, the priests would use the hyssop in their priestly duties, giving sacrifice and presenting sacrifice. This was a real image to David that he was crying out for forgiveness and not just forgiveness, but that he would be clean. He says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. 
Here's the song Brian just sang. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast from me your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. He knew what had happened to Saul because of his disobedience. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And when he's crying out for the restoration of the joy of his salvation, that really means something because David rejoiced in the Lord. He had fallen from a great height. He said, then, as I've been forgiven and my joy is returned, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from the blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing, sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Said, I've got the resources. I could bring a thousand bulls to you if it would do any good, but it won't. Said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these. And your good pleasure makes Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, again, I pray very briefly, but sincerely, that you would come and speak to us through your word today. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Be our guide. Come convict where conviction is needed. Come restore where restoration is needed. We pray that, Spirit, you would come and bring comfort where comfort is needed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. David had set aside his duties as king. He had ignored his gifts as a warrior. He had forsaken his calling as a worshiper, and he failed to pursue intimacy with God. Instead of walking in the calling to be a warrior king, he was at the palace taking a nap in the afternoon. I love naps. I don't know why sleeping late is considered a bad thing and going to bed early isn't. You're still getting extra sleep. Right? But David was not where he was supposed to be, and he was not walking in the calling that God had placed on him. And he had allowed his intimacy with God to wane. And it's very, it's very easy for us on this side of the cross, those of us living in a new covenant relationship with God. Listen, it's very easy to get so comfortable with grace and mercy that we forget the price that was paid to satisfy the justice. David was too comfortable in the blessings God had given to him. When the conviction came, what did he do? He repented. Repentance reorients the attention of our mind and the affection of our heart Godward. The very opening words of this psalm 
is have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He calls out to the God who I imagine had been distant, or at least he felt had been distant. And in his repentance, he was turning his affection and his attention back towards God. We will never be sufficiently motivated to pursue intimacy with God by trying to stay away from sin. Let me say that again. We will never sufficiently be motivated to pursue intimacy with God by trying to stay away from sin, but we will be sufficiently motivated to pursue holiness by turning our faces towards God. That is the act of repentance. It's what David did, and it's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to do as unbelievers. It's what we're called to do as believers. When we fail, our calling is to turn our face back to God. Now, when we turn our face to God, we're turning our back to sin. But our attention and our affection must be restored Godward. We'll never develop intimacy with God looking over our shoulder trying to get away from all the bad stuff. But God will empower us to live in holiness if we're pursuing his face. What does it mean to turn your face to God? Lots of parents in the room, right? See, all over the room. You've got kids, you understand this picture. i got three of them. And they've all done this in different ways. Just the other night, my youngest, Levi, five years old, climbs up in my lap. And he wants my attention, probably to tell me some fact about a dinosaur that I didn't know. I was otherwise occupied in some deep, meditative, spiritually enriching video game on my iPad. And his response was, this literally grabbed me right here by the beard and made me look at him. He got face-to-face. That's the pursuit of intimacy with God. Not that God is ignoring us. He's not. But that we come face-to-face with Him. And in that moment, our affection and our attention is turned Godward. And in that process, we're turning our back to sin. And that is repentance. We change our focus from sinward to Godward. Just like you know, Paul told the church of Ephesus to be imitators of God, as dearly loved children. Draw close into Him. If our love for God is not preeminent, then all the other issues of life will be out of order. Like Jesus told His listeners there in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other issues of life will take care of themselves, right? It's so easy, though, to rest so much and get so comfortable with God's blessings. And they are many, and and they're wonderful. But those blessings should motivate us to a genuine affection for God. It didn't happen with David. His blessings became a motivation to rely on the goodness of God as a comfort.
David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against Israel. David sinned against himself, but ultimately he sinned against God. And in his repentance, he had to turn his affection back. And God said in his word, 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, that's an understatement. And when Nathan came to him, David was asked, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And the problem for most of us as believers, when we skirt against these seasons of failure, is not a lack of information for most of us. It's not a, I didn't know. It's because we despise the word of the Lord his love, his affection, our attention towards him has not become preeminent in our lives. We repent by renewing our mind. Paul told the church at Rome, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Reorient the way we think about who God is and what He has done. Because it was already 16 pages, I didn't put this in there. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, the weapons we fight with are not uh, the weapons that the world uses. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, and we demolish arguments in every pretension, pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The attention of our mind and our act of repentance we make God's Word preeminent in our life to inform us about who God is and what He has done. And when we're not, when our attention is drawn away from that, we put ourselves at risk of falling into these traps of sin. We renew our mind and we return our affections to God. He told the church at Ephesus, this is a church that God loved, and in Revelation 2, the, the angel of the Lord spoke to the church at Ephesus and he says, I have this thing against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did. Return to your first love. That's the act of repentance in the life of a believer. Come back to your first love. Jesus was asked what the most important thing was. He said, it was that, you know, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were trying to trick him get him into trouble. And say, What's the most important law? What's the most important writing in our scriptures? You said, it's easy, you should know this. It's, it's the thing that they said when they gathered for worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Return the affection of God to a preeminent place in your life through the act of repentance. Secondly, repentance clarifies the nature of our sin. Now again, it's so easy to get so comfortable with the grace and the mercy of God that we forget about the offensive nature of sin. Now, and to be clear, when God saves, He completely saves, all right? I'm not talking about a sin consciousness where that every time we stub our toe, we go, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm going to hell today. 
Well, I let some sailor words fly on the interstate this afternoon, you know. No, I am talking about being motivated by our love for God to pursue His character. It's, it, they're, they're similar but separate things. It's not a sin consciousness that we're trying to somehow earn favor that God has already given us, but it's cultivating a desire to be like Him in our character through the pursuit of holiness. And when we repent... We admit and we clarify the nature of our sin. It is offensive to God. David uses three different words here to talk about his transgressions. He says, blot out my transgression, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin in verse 2. And he, he, no wasted words there. He's making a point. He's painting a picture. We know what sin means. It meant the same thing to them. It meant a falling short. Transgression means rebellion. I've rebelled against your nature and your character. And then he gets to this word iniquity. Iniquity at its root means twisted and foul. And that's how David saw his sin against God. And listen to me, church. When we... When we Stop seeing our sin, even as believers, as twisted and foul. Before God, we open ourselves up to the danger of falling into those temptations. Sin is offensive to God. Paul was trying to explain this to the church at Rome. And he said, it's the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes on to explain, you know, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. He says, look, there's no excuse. God's pouring his wrath out, not unjustly, but completely justly because he's made himself known through his very creation. Talked about this morning in Sunday school a little bit. I was listening uh, this week to a, a sermon by John Piper, and he was talking about uh, witnessing to some, some guys on the street. And he just could not get them over the hump that God's grace could cover a multitude of sins, and they just could not make the connection that God could forgive something as heinous as a child abuser or a murderer. And, and you know, in, in, our, in our humanity, we could probably agree with that. How does that work? And they're thinking, where's the justice in that? But the core of the gospel is that the justice in that was poured out on Jesus on the cross. God's not setting aside his justice when we repent. God's not setting aside his justice when he forgives. His justice was poured out on Christ. Because sin is offensive to God. He doesn't just go, no, no, no harm, no foul. Forget about it, it's not that big a deal. It's so offensive to God that he was willing to die for it. The wrath of God is revealed about our sin. When we sin as believers or as unbelievers, but in particular, when we sin as believers, 
We are denying the nature of God and the character of Christ. That's harsh. It's hard for me to hear. Now, I'm not talking about behavior modification. I'm going to tell you, man, as long as we're stuck in these tents of flesh, we're going to deal with sin. It's how we deal with dealing with sin that's going to make the difference. Sin is offensive to God, and it's pervasive in humanity. It's a, it's a problem for all of us. And we don't stop having that problem when we enter into a relationship with Christ. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand and seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And then Paul kind of echoes that in Romans when he says, all have sinned and fall short of his glory. It's a common issue. We have to be aware of that. That in our pursuit of holiness, we have to be real about the nature of our sin before God. Repentance reorients the affection of our heart and attention of our mind Godward. Repentance clarifies the nature of our sin. And repentance acknowledges our total dependence on God for restoration. That's exactly what David was pouring his heart out about in Psalm 51. He says, No man can redeem the life for another or give, a, or, or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is, that's the wrong verse. It's a good one, though. Y'all write that out of Psalm 49. He cries out to God, create in me a clean heart and renew his steadfast spirit within me. And he says, do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And then he says, restore to me. It's the song we sang. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant to me a willing spirit and sustain me. David confesses before God, I don't have the ability to deal with my sin on my own. And neither do we. Sin is a pervasive and enduring problem and requires a sufficient and eternal solution. And we are totally and completely dependent on the work of Christ on the cross to access the grace and the mercy of God. We receive His grace and His mercy because Jesus received the justice that was ours. Again, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance 
for us to do. We are completely and totally dependent on the work of Christ and the love and the mercy of God to save us from our sin. Whether you're outside of the covenant or inside of the covenant, your salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. But it gets hard, doesn't it? John 6, Jesus had been teaching. and He began to talk about, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that was a little bit too much for some of them. Some of this crowd that had been following him around, they said, I don't know about that. Those are some harsh words. And a lot of folks that had been following after him began not to follow after. John 6, verse 66, after this, many disciples turned back. Many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, you want to go away as well? What about you guys? Pete, you out? James, John, you guys gone? Simon Peter answered him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and now come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else to turn. We are completely dependent on Christ for our salvation. And finally, as I kind of wrap this up, just really as an epilogue, repentance results in God being glorified and the sinner being reconciled. When we repent, God gets the glory for, for that. David wraps this up by saying, when I repent, when your restoration comes into my life, then I'm going to start teaching transgressors about your ways. My my goal, God, from this point on is to make you famous for your loving kindness and your faithfulness to your people. Repentance results in God being glorified and the sinner being reconciled. Psalm 96 Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Folks, you may not be in the same boat I'm in. And I pray that you're not. But what I pray for myself is that God will daily, constantly and consistently restore the joy of my salvation. I pray that we as God's people will commit when we gather and when we walk out those doors to make known His marvelous works among the nations. If you're here this morning and you're, you're feeling the pressure of that conviction I don't, I don't have anything I and my humanity can give you. But I do have this. Repent and believe and be reconciled to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us from our sins when we confess them to Him. 1 John 1, 9, if, we're faithful, if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for who You are and what You have done. 
thank God, as, as big a mess as your servant was today, as your messenger is, I pray that your message will be received with clarity, Lord. And that message is sin is foul and twisted. But your mercy and your grace sustains. And if we repent and believe, we can faithfully trust in your promise to save. God, I pray that through your Spirit, we have your will and your way in this place this morning. We pray this in the name above all names, the name that saves, the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together as Brian comes to lead us in a song of response. And if you have a response you'd like to make, this is our custom here. I invite you to do it. I'll be glad to come and speak with you here at the front. You might want to just kneel where you are and have your moment with God. But would you respond as the Spirit leads you?